Section 44 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Dole. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 4, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 20, Part 1, of Civil Government. This chapter consists of two principal heads. 1. General discourse on the necessity, dignity, and use of civil government, in opposition to the frantic proceedings of the Anabaptists. Sections 1 through 3. 2. A special exposition of the three leading parts of which civil government consists, sections 4 through 32. The first part treats of the function of magistrates, whose authority and calling is proved, section 4 through 7. Next, the three forms of civil government are added, section 8. Thirdly, consideration of the office of the civil magistrate in respect of piety and righteousness, here of rewards and punishments, namely punishing the guilty, protecting the innocent, repressing the seditious, managing the affairs of peace and war, sections 9 through 13. The second part treats of laws, their utility, necessity, form, authority, constitution, and scope, sections 14 through 16. The last part relates to the people and explains the use of laws, courts, and magistrates to the common society of Christians, sections 17 through 21. Deference which private individuals owe to magistrates and how far obedience ought to be carried, sections 22 to 32. Sections 1. Last part of the whole work relating to the institution of civil government, the consideration of it necessary. 1. To refute the Anabaptists. 2. To refute the flatterers of princes. 3. To excite our gratitude to God. Civil government not opposed to Christian liberty. Civil government to be distinguished from the spiritual kingdom of Christ. 2. Objections of the Anabaptists. 1. That civil government is unworthy of a Christian man. 2. That it is diametrically repugnant to the Christian profession. Answer. 3. The answer confirmed. Discourse reduced to three heads. 1. Of laws. 2. Of magistrates. 3. Of the people. 4. The office of magistrates approved by God. 1. They are called gods. 2. They are ordained by the wisdom of God. Examples of pious magistrates. 5. Civil government appointed by God for Jews, not Christians. This objection answered. 6. Divine appointment of magistrates effect which this ought to have on magistrates themselves, 
7. This consideration should repress the fury of the Anabaptists. 8. Three forms of civil government, monarchy, aristocracy, democracy. Impossible absolutely to say which is best. 9. Of the duty of magistrates, their first care, the preservation of the Christian religion and true piety. This proved. 10. Objections of Anabaptists to this view. These answered. 11. Lawfulness of war. 12. Objection that the lawfulness of war is not taught in Scripture. Answer. 13. Right of exacting tribute and raising revenues. 14. Of laws, their necessity and utility. Distinction between the moral, ceremonial, and judicial law of Moses. 15. Sum and scope of the moral law, of the ceremonial and judicial law. Conclusion. 16. All laws should be just. Civil law of Moses. How far in force and how far abrogated. 17. Of the people and of the use of laws as respects individuals. 18. How far litigation lawful. 19. Refutation of the Anabaptists who condemn all judicial proceedings. 20. Objection that Christ forbids us to resist evil. Answer. 21. Objection that Paul condemns lawsuits absolutely. Answer. 22. Of the respect and obedience due to magistrates. 23. Same subject continued. 24. How far submission due to tyrants? 25. Same continued. 26. Proof from Scripture. 27. Proof continued. 28. Objections answered. 29. Considerations to curb impatience under tyranny. 30. Considerations considered. 31. General submission due by private individuals. 32. Obedience due only in so far as compatible with the word of God. 1. Having shown above that there is a twofold government in man, and having fully considered the one which, placed in the soul or inward man, relates to eternal life, we are here called to say something of the other, which pertains only to civil institutions and the external regulation of manners. For although this subject seems from its nature to be unconnected with the spiritual doctrine of faith, which I have undertaken to treat, it will appear as we proceed that I have properly connected them, nay, that I am under the necessity of doing so, especially while on the one hand frantic and barbarous men are furiously endeavouring to overturn the order established by God, and on the other, the flatterers of princes, extolling their power without measure, hesitate not to oppose it to the government of God. Unless we meet both extremes, the purity of the faith will perish. We may add 
that it in no small degree concerns us to know how kindly God has here consulted for the human race, that pious zeal may the more strongly urge us to testify our gratitude. And first, before entering on the subject itself, it is necessary that I add to the distinction which we formerly laid down, Book 3, Chapter 19, Section 16, Net Supra, Chapter 10, lest, as often happens to many, we imprudently confound these two things, the nature of which is altogether different. For some, on hearing that liberty is promised in the gospel, a liberty which acknowledges no king and no magistrate among men, but looks to Christ alone, think that they can receive no benefit from their liberty so long as they see any power placed over them. Accordingly, they think that nothing will be safe until the whole world is changed into a new form, when there will be neither courts, nor laws, nor magistrates, nor anything of the kind to interfere as they suppose with their liberty. But he who knows how to distinguish between the body and the soul, between the present fleeting life and that which is future and eternal, will have no difficulty in understanding that the spiritual kingdom of Christ and civil government are things very widely separated. Seeing, therefore, it is a Jewish vanity to seek and include the kingdom of Christ under the elements of this world, let us, considering as Scripture clearly teaches that the blessings which we derive from Christ are spiritual, remember to confine the liberty which is promised and offered to us in Him within its proper limits. For why is it that the very same Apostle, who bids us, quote, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not again entangled with the yoke of bondage, unquote, Galatians 5.1, in another passage forbids slaves to be solicitous about their state, 1 Corinthians 7.21, unless it be that spiritual liberty is perfectly compatible with civil servitude. In this sense, the following passages are to be understood. Quote, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female. Unquote. Galatians 3.28 Again, quote, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Unquote. Colossians 3.11 It is thus intimated that it matters not what your condition is among men, nor under what laws you live, since in them the kingdom of Christ does not at all consist. 2. Still the distinction does not go so far as to justify us in supposing that the whole scheme of civil government is matter of pollution with which Christian men have nothing to do. Fanatics, indeed, delighting in unbridled license, insist and vociferate that, after we are dead by Christ to the elements of this world, and being translated into the kingdom of God, sit among the celestials. It is unworthy of us, and far beneath our dignity, 
to be occupied with those profane and impure cares which relate to matters alien from a Christian man. To what end, they say, are laws without courts and tribunals? But what has a Christian man to do with courts? Nay, if it is unlawful to kill, what have we to do with laws and courts? But as we lately taught that that kind of government is distinct from the spiritual and internal kingdom of Christ, so we ought to know that they are not adverse to each other. The former, in some measure, begins the heavenly kingdom in us, even now, upon earth, and in this mortal and evanescent life commences immortal and incorruptible blessedness, while to the latter it is assigned, so long as we live among men, to foster and maintain the external worship of God, to defend sound doctrine and the condition of the church, to adapt our conduct to human society, to form our manners to civil justice, to conciliate us to each other, to cherish common peace and tranquillity. All these I confess to be superfluous if the kingdom of God, as it now exists within us, extinguishes the present life. But if it is the will of God that while we aspire to true piety we are pilgrims upon the earth, and if such pilgrimage stands in need of such aids, those who take them away from man rob him of his humanity. As to their allegation that there ought to be such perfection in the church of God that her guidance should suffice for law, they stupidly imagine her to be such as she never can be found in the community of men. For while the insolence of the wicked is so great, and their iniquity so stubborn that it can scarcely be curbed by any severity of laws, what do we expect would be done by those whom force can scarcely repress from doing evil, were they to see perfect impunity for their wickedness? 3. But we shall have a fitter opportunity of speaking of the use of civil government. All we wish to be understood at present is that it is perfect barbarism to think of exterminating it, its use among men being not less than that of bread and water, light and air, while its dignity is much more excellent. Its object is not merely, like those things, to enable men to breathe, eat, drink, and be warmed, though it certainly includes all these while it enables them to live together. This, I say, is not its only object, but it is that no idolatry, no blasphemy against the name of God, no calumnies against his truth, nor other offences to religion break out and be disseminated among the people, that the public quiet be not disturbed, that every man's property be kept secure, that men may carry on innocent commerce with each other, that honesty and modesty be cultivated. In short, that a public form of religion may exist among Christians and humanity among men. Let no one be surprised that I now attribute the task of constituting religion a right to human polity, though I seem above to have placed it beyond the will of man, since I no more than formally allow men at pleasure to enact laws concerning religion 
and the worship of God when I approve of civil order, which is directed to this end, namely, to prevent the true religion which is contained in the law of God from being with impunity openly violated and polluted by public blasphemy. But the reader, by the help of a perspicuous arrangement, will better understand what view is to be taken of the whole order of civil government if we treat of each of its parts separately. Now these are three. The magistrate, who is president and guardian of the laws, the laws, according to which he governs, and the people, who are governed by the laws and obey the magistrate. Let us consider then first what is the function of the magistrate. Is it a lawful calling approved by God? What is the nature of his duty? What the extent of his power? Secondly, what are the laws by which Christian polity is to be regulated? And lastly, what is the use of laws as regards the people? And what obedience is due to the magistrate? 4. With regard to the function of magistrates, the Lord has not only declared that he approves and is pleased with it, but moreover has strongly recommended it to us by the very honourable titles which he has conferred upon it. To mention a few, when those who bear the office of magistrate are called gods, let no one suppose that there is little weight in that appellation. It is thereby intimated that they have a commission from God, that they are invested with divine authority, and in fact represent the person of God, as whose substitutes they in a manner act. This is not a quibble of mine, but is the interpretation of Christ. Quote, if Scripture, quote, unquote, says he, quote, called them gods to whom the word of God came, unquote, what is this but that the business was committed to them by God to serve him in their office and as Moses and Jehoshaphat said to the judges whom they were appointing over each of the cities of Judah, to exercise judgment, not for man, but for God. To the same effect, wisdom affirms by the mouth of Solomon, quote, By me kings reign, and princes decree justice. By me princes rule, and nobles, even all the judges of the earth, unquote. Proverbs 8.15 and 16. For it is just as if it had been said that it is not owing to human perverseness that supreme power on earth is lodged in kings and other governors, but by divine providence and the holy decree of him to whom it has seemed good so to govern the affairs of men, since he is present and also presides in enacting laws and exercising judicial equity. This Paul also plainly teaches when he enumerates the offices of rule among the gifts of God, which distributed variously according to the measure of grace ought to be employed by the servants of Christ for the edification of the church. Romans 12.8 in that place, however, he is properly speaking of the senate of grave men who were appointed in the primitive church to take charge of public discipline. This office, 
In the epistle to the Corinthians, he calls Cubanesis, governments, 1 Corinthians 12.28. Still, as we see that civil power has the same end in view, there can be no doubt that he is recommending every kind of just government. He speaks much more clearly when he comes to a proper discussion of the subject, for he says that, quote, there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God, unquote. That rulers are the ministers of God, quote, not a terror to good works, but to the evil, unquote. Romans 13, 1, 3. To this we may add the examples of saints, some of whom held the offices of kings, as David, Josiah, and Hezekiah, others of governors, as Joseph and Daniel, others of civil magistrates among a free people, as Moses, Joshua, and the judges. Their functions were expressly approved by the Lord. Wherefore no man can doubt that civil authority is in the sight of God not only sacred and lawful, but the most sacred and by far the most honourable of all stations in mortal life. 5. Those who are desirous to introduce anarchy object that, though anciently kings and judges presided over a rude people, yet that in the present day that servile mode of governing does not at all accord with the perfection which Christ brought with his gospel. Herein they betray not only their ignorance, but their devilish pride, arrogating to themselves a perfection of which not even a hundredth part is seen in them. But be they what they may, the refutation is easy. For when David says, quote, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth, unquote, quote, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, unquote, Psalm 2, 10 and 12. He does not order them to lay aside their authority and return to private life, but to make the power with which they are invested subject to Christ, that he might rule over all. In like manner, when Isaiah predicts of the church, quote, Kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers, unquote, Isaiah 49.23, he does not bid them abdicate their authority. He rather gives them the honourable appellation of patrons, of the pious worshippers of God. For the prophecy refers to the advent of Christ. I intentionally omit very many passages which occur throughout Scripture, and especially in the Psalms, in which the due authority of all rulers is asserted. The most celebrated passage of all is that in which Paul, admonishing Timothy, that prayers are to be offered up in the public assembly for kings, subjoins the reason that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Unquote. 1 Timothy 2, verse 2. In these words he recommends the condition of the church to their protection and guardianship. 6. This consideration ought to be constantly present to the minds of magistrates, since it is fitted to furnish a strong stimulus to the discharge of duty, and also affords singular consolation 
smoothing the difficulties of their office, which are certainly numerous and weighty. What zeal for integrity, prudence, meekness, continence, and innocence ought to sway those who know that they have been appointed ministers of the divine justice? How will they dare to admit iniquity to their tribunal when they are told that it is the throne of the living God? How will they venture to pronounce an unjust sentence with that mouth which they understand to be an ordained organ of divine truth? With what conscience will they subscribe impious decrees with that hand which they know has been appointed to write the acts of God? In a word, if they remember that they are vice-regents of God, it behoves them to watch with all care, diligence, and industry, that they may in themselves exhibit a kind of image of the divine providence, guardianship, goodness, benevolence, and justice, and let them constantly keep the additional thought in view, that if a curse is pronounced on him that, quote, doeth the work of the law deceitfully, unquote, a much heavier curse must lie on him who deals deceitfully in a righteous calling. Therefore, when Moses and Jehoshaphat would urge their judges to the discharge of duty, they had nothing by which they could more powerfully stimulate their minds than the consideration to which we have already referred, quote, Take heed what ye do, for ye judge not for man, but for the Lord, who is with you in the judgment. Wherefore now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take heed and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, nor respect of persons, nor taking of gifts. Unquote. 2 Chronicles 19, 6 and 7, compared with Deuteronomy 1, 16, etc. And in another passage it is said, quote, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. Unquote. Psalm 82.1, Isaiah 3.14, that they may be animated to duty when they hear that they are the ambassadors of God, to whom they must one day render an account of the province committed to them. This admonition ought justly to have the greatest effect upon them, for if they sin in any respect, not only is injury done to the men whom they wickedly torment, but they also insult God himself, whose sacred tribunals they pollute. On the other hand, they have an admirable source of comfort when they reflect that they are not engaged in profane occupations, unbefitting a servant of God, but in a most sacred office, inasmuch as they are ambassadors of God. 7. In regard to those who are not debarred by all these passages of Scripture from presuming to inveigh against this sacred ministry, as if it were a thing abhorrent from religion and Christian piety, what else do they than assail God himself, who cannot but be insulted when his servants are disgraced? These men not only speak evil of dignities, but would not even have God to reign over them. 1 Samuel 7.7 7. For if this was truly said of the people of Israel, when they declined the authority of Samuel, how can it be less truly said in the present day of those who allow themselves to break loose against all the authority established by God? 
But it seems that when our Lord said to his disciples, quote, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. Unquote. Luke 22, 25 and 26. He by these words prohibited all Christians from becoming kings or governors. Dexterous expounders. A dispute had arisen among the disciples as to which of them should be greatest. To suppress this vain ambition, our Lord taught them that their ministry was not like the power of earthly sovereigns, among whom one greatly surpasses another. What, I ask, is there in this comparison disparaging to royal dignity? Nay, what does it prove at all, unless that the royal office is not the apostolic ministry? Besides, though among magisterial officers themselves there are different forms, there is no difference in this respect that they are all to be received by us as ordinances of God. For Paul includes all together when he says that, quote, there is no power but of God, unquote. And that, which was by no means the most pleasing of all, was honoured with the highest testimonial, I mean the power of one. This as carrying with it the public servitude of all, except the one to whose despotic will all is subject, was anciently disrelished by heroic and more excellent natures. But Scripture, to obviate these unjust judgments, affirms expressly that it is by divine wisdom that, quote, kings reign, unquote, and gives special command to, quote, honour the king, unquote, 1 Peter 2.17. 8. And certainly it were a very idle occupation for private men to discuss what would be the best form of polity in the place where they live, seeing these deliberations cannot have any influence in determining any public matter. Then the thing itself could not be defined absolutely without rashness, since the nature of the discussion depends on circumstances. And if you compare the different states with each other, without regard to circumstances, it is not easy to determine which of these has the advantage in point of utility. So equal are the terms on which they meet. Monarchy is prone to tyranny. In an aristocracy, again, the tendency is not less to the faction of a few, while in popular ascendancy there is the strongest tendency to sedition. When these three forms of government of which philosophers treat are considered in themselves, I, for my part, am far from denying that the form which greatly surpasses the others is aristocracy, either pure or modified by popular government. Not indeed of itself, but because it very rarely happens that kings so rule themselves as never to dissent from what is just and right, or are possessed with so much acuteness and prudence as always to see correctly. Owing, therefore, to the vices or defects of men, it is safer and more tolerable when several bear rule, that they may thus mutually assist, instruct, and admonish each other, and should any one be disposed to go too far, 
the others are censors and masters to curb his excess. This has already been proved by experience, and confirmed also by the authority of the Lord himself, when he established an aristocracy bordering on popular government among the Israelites, keeping them under that as the best form until he exhibited an image of the Messiah in David. And as I willingly admit that there is no kind of government happier than where liberty is framed with becoming moderation and duly constituted so as to be durable, so I deem those very happy who are permitted to enjoy that form, and I admit that they do nothing at variance with their duty when they strenuously and constantly labour to preserve and maintain it. Nay, even magistrates ought to do their utmost to prevent the liberty, of which they have been appointed guardians, from being impaired, far less violated. If in this they are sluggish or little careful, they are perfidious traitors to their office and their country. But should those to whom the Lord has assigned one form of government take it upon them anxiously to long for a change, the wish would not only be foolish and superfluous, but very pernicious. If you fix your eyes not on one state merely, but look around the world, or at least direct your view to regions widely separated from each other, you will perceive that the divine providence has not without good cause arranged that different countries should be governed by different forms of polity. For as only elements of unequal temperature adhere together, so in different regions a similar inequality in the form of government is best. All this, however, is said unnecessarily to those to whom the will of God is sufficient reason. For if it has pleased him to appoint kings over kingdoms, and senates and burgomasters over free states, whatever be the form which he has appointed in the places in which we live, our duty is to obey and submit. 9. The duty of magistrates, its nature, as described by the word of God, and the things which it consists, I will here indicate in passing, that it extends to both tables of the law, did scripture not teach, we might learn from profane writers, for no man has discoursed of the duty of magistrates, the enacting of laws, and the common weal, without beginning with religion and divine worship. Thus all have confessed that no polity can be successfully established unless piety be its first care, and that those laws are absurd which disregard the rights of God and consult only for men. Seeing then that among philosophers religion holds the first place, and that the same thing has always been observed with the universal consent of nations, Christian princes and magistrates may be ashamed of their heartlessness if they make it not their care. We have already shown that this office is specially assigned them by God, and indeed it is right that they exert themselves in asserting and defending the honour of him whose vice-regents they are, and by whose favour they rule. Hence in Scripture holy kings are especially praised for restoring the worship of God when corrupted or overthrown.
or for taking care that religion flourished under them in purity and safety. On the other hand, the sacred history sets down anarchy among the vices, when it states that there was no king in Israel, and therefore everyone did as he pleased. Judges 21.25 This rebukes the folly of those who would neglect the care of divine things and devote themselves merely to the administration of justice among men, as if God had appointed rulers in his own name to decide earthly controversies and omitted what was of far greater moment, his own pure worship as prescribed by his law. Such views are adopted by turbulent men, who in their eagerness to make all kinds of innovations with impunity, would fain get rid of all the vindicators of violated piety. In regard to the second table of the law, Jeremiah addresses rulers, quote, Thus saith the Lord, Execute ye judgment and righteousness, and deliver the spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor, and do no wrong, do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, nor the widow, neither shed innocent blood. Unquote. Jeremiah 22.3 To the same effect is the exhortation in the psalm, quote, Defend the poor and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy, deliver the poor and needy, rid them out of the hand of the wicked, unquote. Psalm 82.3 and 4 Moses also declared to the princes whom he had substituted for himself, quote, Hear the causes between your brethren, and judge righteously between every man and his brother, and the stranger that is with him. Ye shall not respect persons in judgment, but ye shall hear the small as well as the great. Ye shall not be afraid of the face of man, for the judgment is God's. Unquote. Deuteronomy 1.16 I say nothing as to such passages as these, quote, he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt. Unquote. Quote, neither shall he multiply wives to himself, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Unquote. Quote, he shall write him a copy of this law in a book. Unquote. Quote, and it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, unquote. Quote, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, unquote. Deuteronomy 17, 16-20. In here explaining the duties of magistrates, my exposition is intended not so much for the instruction of magistrates themselves, as to teach others why there are magistrates, and to what end they have been appointed by God. We say, therefore, that they are the ordained guardians and vindicators of public innocence, modesty, honour, and tranquillity, so that it should be their only study to provide for the common peace and safety. Of these things David declares that he will set an example when he shall have ascended the throne. Quote, A forward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privily slandereth his neighbour, him will I cut off. Him that hath a high look and a proud heart will not I suffer. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. 
He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. Unquote. Psalm 101, 4-6 But as rulers cannot do this, unless they protect the good against the injuries of the bad, and give aid and protection to the oppressed, they are armed with power to curb manifest evildoers and criminals, by whose misconduct the public tranquillity is disturbed or harassed. For we have full experience of the truth of Solon's saying, that all public matters depend on reward and punishment, that where these are wanting, the whole discipline of states totters and falls to pieces. For in the minds of many, the love of equity and justice grows cold if due honour be not paid to virtue, and the licentiousness of the wicked cannot be restrained without strict discipline and the affliction of punishment. The two things are comprehended by the prophet when he enjoins kings and other rulers to execute, quote, judgment and righteousness, unquote, Jeremiah 21, 12, 22, 3. It is righteousness, justice, to take charge of the innocent, to defend and avenge them, and set them free. It is judgment to withstand the audacity of the wicked, to repress their violence, and punish their faults. End of section 44